Hi, everyone. Welcome to the last day of September. And as I speak right now, Hurricane Ian has just made landfall in South Carolina, in Charleston, which is about four hours away from us here in Asheville, North Carolina. So I'm just thinking of everyone that this storm has affected a massive amount of people and many, many communities. And it's a lot. I I can't even imagine. We're sort of tucked in the mountains up here in Western North Carolina, and we will get a lot of rain shortly, but it's not anything like others have endured. And my heart just goes out to everybody. These storm systems have such an incredible power to them. It's just, it's breathtaking on one level, and it's it's so heart-wrenching on another. So I'm thinking of you if you are affected by this or if you have loved ones that are. And there's always so much going on in the external world whenever we meet, isn't there? There's just always change and turmoil and also joy and also goodness and you know, as ever, we keep training our minds and our hearts to notice and be in sync with the conscious acts, with the consciousness rising as best we can. So welcome to today. You may hear some crows. I noticed they were sort of cawing a lot this morning, and I'm imagining it has something to do with the impending weather. So you may hear a bit of that. I imagine I'll get done recording before the rain truly sets in, but you may hear a bit of rain too. We are in the hunter moon cycle and in the phase of the waxing moon. So I would like to begin by touching on two poems that I wrote to honor that moon phase and cycle. This one is for the hunter new moon. Prepare now, turn inward. This maddening, crushing, breathtaking world is not all there is. Ignore the frenzied insistence. Join the heartbeat. Remember the preferred pace, perhaps the pace one never got to know. The fates stir and scatter, and this is their genius. Risk the simpler truth. Time spent walking the inner garden is the only guarantee of peace. Longing for stillness in the shadow of the hunter moon, I track the inner landscape. Certainly the Fates are stirring and scattering right now in terms of weather and external events. But we do always have this anchor. And I find I just rely on it so much. It steadies me. And, you know, if you've been following my podcast for a while, we return again and again and again to the mental disciplines of honoring what's real and what's not. Uh, giving birth to or creative life to things in in an imaginal and an intentional and as conscious as possible way. I just return to those practices again and again. 
and it has an effect. I I am just so buoyed and encouraged sometimes when I see my inner life catching up with my outer circumstances. And what I mean by that is twofold. One, I'm catching myself so much more quickly when I start to, you know, drift into negativity or into thought patterns that are not productive. And I don't mean sort of that toxic positivity that, you know, is also not helpful. (laughs) I'm not talking about that, just saying, oh, everything's love and light. I'm not talking about that, but I'm just talking about the patterns that say, you know, I'm a victim or I have, you know, there's nothing I can do about this situation or, or things like that or judgment of any kind, really. So returning to source and being ever present, ever, ever cautious about, as we've spoken of in the past, not slipping into spiritual bypass, you know, and sort of throwing up your hands and and just tacking a meme onto the end of your life and not participating in your own solution. But yet again, dancing on the head of a pin of claiming your power, but also living in the surrendered state, (laughs) which seems so paradoxical. But that is the sweet spot. That's the flow space. And I just find the more that I work these muscles and practice and discipline in that regard and in that endeavor, it is having an effect. So I'm catching myself more. And then number two, I see events in my external life mirroring that much more often. And they're connected. They always have been, but I realize how they're connected now and how I actually can change things that I would desire to experience. It's about that, just desiring to experience it. So it's not because the internal or excuse me, it's not because the external, quote, positive or negative is going to sway me in any way from my authenticity and who I know I am. But I can appreciate perhaps the forms that the external takes while staying rooted in the peace and in the joy of, of being as present as, as I'm capable in any moment. So... With that, I'd like to now read about the waxing hunter moon. Along these mossy bends, I remembered kinship. With a rhythm from once upon a time, it was an artist's life, a life moved by deeper pleasures, a life rather unkempt, deliciously unkempt. Do I possess the courage to call her forth? Funny, after all this time that I should even ask. She hunted me. Among these vines and crickets, she shrieked her wild joy. So, what am I talking about there? I mentioned in the last podcast that we would devote today's to Persephone, and in particular, Persephone's reign in the underworld. And that's indeed what we're going to talk about today. And it's 
a sensibility I've been living with for a good portion of the month as we move into the darker time of year, if you're in the Northern Hemisphere. And that's what I was reaching for in this poem, is that spirit of she who is able to dwell and know her incredible value who isn't running around trying to tidy her life up all the time to make it seem better. And we're going to take a deep dive into that space today because as I grow and travel my own journey, I find that Persephone becomes increasingly important to me. And I'm going to go into the reasons why here in just a moment, but just as a way of sort of giving the overview of that, she, that mythological, psychological sensibility, she is one of the few examples we have of that feminine force. And we have so many Uh, mythological hero's journey examples, which is fantastic because we all have all of these characters and archetypes working within our own psychological systems. So it's not that I discount the masculine at all, but C.G. Jung himself said that the anima, the feminine principle, is closest to life itself. And again, that doesn't mean in a hierarchical sense that women are better than men, nothing of the kind, because that would be getting into gender as opposed to the masculine and the feminine, the receptive and the active, the yin, the yang. You know, I've said that over and over again, but I just really want to repeat that. It bears repeating all of these energies are alive within us, within any one psyche. But... To have this feminine presence in the the story of Persephone, and in particular in her underworld time, is really interesting and really powerful because we just don't have a lot of examples in mythology of that feminine force in terms of like a heroine's journey. Because it it takes a different shape than the hero's journey. They're both very important. They're both vital parts of our own awakenings. But I would offer that the feminine face of this, whether it's Persephone or the Gnostic Sophia, is deeply shrouded in mystery. And that is for a very specific reason, To hearken back to what I just said, Jung said, it's because it travels so close, life itself. We are living a human experience. However you think of the authentic self, the self with a capital S, if you're looking at things from a depth psychological perspective, so the self with a capital S, that inner divine nature that is your home, that is your true nature, we still have the human aspect, and and those sort of bounce off each other, their intention with each other, creating the life that we're living in the external space. 
and to drop into that inner space, that deep mystery, reveals the knowing and and the experiential realization that you are not, quote unquote, this, this human ultimately, that that also is an archetype of this well-intended, as good as one can be, moral human being. Peter Kingsley says in his work, that's one of the most deceptive archetypes. And it is to just totally succumb to that illusion or hypnotic trance that that's all that we are. And so in looking at the anima and the animus in a Jungian sense, the anima, I'm guessing for many reasons, but one of which, you know, for the fact that life can come through the feminine, is the one that travels so closely to life itself, to that ultimate mystery of our own identity, our, our source identity. So I think the fact that Persephone in the underworld is, is just traveling so close to those deep, deep mysteries of life and death and just so close to the veil and the borderlands of the psychological journey, I find her really moving and incredibly powerful. So just put a pin in that just for a second. I mentioned last time that I was going to be doing several updates on my website at lauriegreen.net. And indeed, I got those done. So check it out if you haven't, because I'm sort of celebrating Persephone and her underworld phase right now. And there's some really cool imagery and, in, in my estimation, and some really beautiful ways of invoking and honoring her on the site. And I've also updated the bookshop, which links to bookshop.org. So any book you purchase through um, my website will support indie bookshops, which I love being a part of that effort and endeavor. So check it out. I think it gives a beautiful visual for what we're talking about today. So with that, just in some recent reading, I was doing another really great synchronistic moment popped up in that Jung had this beautiful study space that he created at his home. It was kind of like this little castle by a lake and it's called Bollingen. And he did a lot of his mystical inquiry there and inscribed above the fireplace in Latin was the inscription for, I seek what is impossible. And I just ran across that really lovely anecdote the other day, and I wanted to share that in the context of our talking about Persephone. And I so resonate with that, that phrase, that intention. And I think we all do when we're at our most brave and our most in our most authentic space, we sense there's so much more that we are capable of and that we are to be about if we continue in these disciplines of 
setting the mind chatter aside, setting the emotional turbulence aside, and staying focused on the present moment and what's arising and what we're intending to create through the imagination and through stillness. And the Persephone story is such a dance and journey into the impossible that I just love connecting those two ideas. And so for those of us who need a refresher on what Persephone's story is, just a few highlights of her story in the mythological sense. She originally was a young maiden by the name of Kore, and she was Demeter's daughter. And Demeter was the goddess of the harvest and of the earth and all its abundance. And she, meaning Kore, is the beloved beloved daughter of Demeter and she's out picking flowers one day and then there's this incredible rumble and the earth rips open and Hades, the god of the underworld, reaches up and whisks her away and takes her down, you know, in his mad chariot and she's abducted into the underworld. And then there's this whole saga about Demeter going into incredible grief and withholding the harvest and having, you know, this encounter with Zeus, who is the father who actually knew about the abduction and her journey to find Kore. And then what's happening to Kore in the underworld, there is less information about, but she ultimately eats a pomegranate that links her forever to that space. And then there's an encounter with Hecate, who is a goddess also of the of the borderland space, definitely a crone sensibility. I've done work on her in past podcasts because she is a fascinating and very important figure. I won't go into her today, but anyway, gathering all these people into the story, all these characters into the story, there's ultimately a bargain made with Zeus that Demeter will have Persephone in the topside world for spring and summer, and then she will return to the underworld for fall and winter, and that gives rise to the seasons. And so there's this dual nature about Persephone and Kore indeed becomes the queen Persephone because of her time in the underworld. She is uninitiated. And I don't mean in the sexual sense. I just mean in terms of her own sense of herself. She's very naive before this abduction. So psychologically speaking, This abduction into the underworld could be likened to depression or any time we are faced with some kind of tragedy or some kind of suffering or some kind of external life event that sucks us in to that underworld when we don't really want to go. And we're forced to deal with all these aspects of ourselves and to find out what we're really made of because it's out of our control. It's larger than us. 
And I want to read this really, really great passage from Clarissa Pincola Estes from her, from her book, Women Who Run With the Wolves. I think she makes a really important point about the myth of Persephone. I'm reading straight from her work. She says, here, the old night religion again comes up from the road to meet us, while the old tale of Hades grabbing off Persephone to the underworld is a fine drama, far older stories from the Matria-centered religions, such as those about Ishtar and Inanna, point toward a definite yearning to love bond between the maiden and the king in the underworld. In these old religious versions, the maiden need not be seized and dragged into the underworld by some dark god. The maiden knows she must go, knows it is part of divine right. Although she may be fearful, she wants to go meet her king, her bridegroom in the underworld from the beginning. Making her descent in her own way, she is transformed there, learns deep knowing there, and ascends again to the outer world. Both the classical Persephone myth and the core of the fairy tale The Handless Maiden are fragmentary dramas which derive from the more cohesive ones portrayed in the older religions. What was once a longing to find the underworld beloved became somewhere in time a lust and seizure in later myths. So I love this idea that in the really ancient matriarchal sense, this was something that the feminine knew needed to happen. And I think that adds a lot of power to this journey because when we are uninitiated about our internal life, about our interiority, about our depths, we are naive. No matter what experiences we are having externally, there's something lacking. And to scour those depths and to remain as conscious as possible with the onslaught of that, because it's not easy. It is not easy to be in those deep places. But something flowers and blossoms through that process. Call it individuation. Call it returning home to yourself, like in the sense of the prodigal son or daughter. You can call it many things. But the important thing is that reintegration, psychically speaking, soulfully speaking, spiritually speaking, is something we will all tackle at some point. And the beauty and the power and the resilience that can never be taken away by anything external that comes from that process is, is beyond measure. That is, that is the grail. We have been seeking ourselves, but this deeper aspect of ourselves. And so I would like to just offer that it's lovely to be in the external world and doing the external things. And let's just sort of liken that for argument's sake to Persephone when she's in her spring and summer form, okay? She's about doing good things in the world. She, quote unquote, has parents, 
meaning she's reunited with Demeter. And what I mean by that is, you know, she has roles to play and she has ideas and beliefs and she plays with the forms. That's a, that's a great term from Eckhart Tolle. You know, we play with the forms of the external world, but she is not identified by them because she met her identity in the underworld. She met it there. And so by contrast, then her underworld, her interior and imaginal sense of herself is about stillness. It's about source and divinity. It's about trust and knowing and the deep, deep mysteries that we are not going to have the answers for on this side of our life. We, we just won't have all those answers. And that's okay. That, that mystery can travel with us and enrich our experiences. Persephone in the Underworld is about encountering the creative matrix of life itself. And then when she's up in the world again, in the topside world or the external world, you know, she goes about and enjoys things. But she carries with her this sense of being and authenticity and vitality and worth because she has become a queen. She has become sovereign. If you think back to last podcast, we talked about the difference between being celebrity versus being sovereign. She meets her sovereign self through the trials of the underworld. But then she has something incredible to stand on, stand in, stand from. And it changes everything. It changes her very name. She's no longer Corey. She is Persephone. And I think about that wonderful book, if you haven't read it, do. It's fantastic. It's called Hawk by Helen MacDonald. And I've mentioned it before in the podcast. And it's about her grieving the passing of her father. So it's a true story. But also training a red-tailed hawk. She's a falconer. So she's training this hawk while she's grieving. And it's what unfolds over the course of that endeavor. And at one point, she has this incredible perspective. You know, a hawk is so wild and so free and so fierce. And she sort of falls under its trance for a while, and she needs to be in that underworld to sort of piece herself back together again. But coming out the other side of that, the hawk teaches her something really important, and the hawk's name, I think, is Mabel. I'm pretty sure it's Mabel. Anyway, check that book out. It's so great. But she says at one point, and I'm paraphrasing here, But she says, never mistake the wildness for the thing that animates it. Never mistake wildness for the thing that actually animates it. So here's this, you know, fierce form in the external world. 
And as human beings, we tend to become entranced by the external, you know, so she has this love affair with the hawk and learns so much from it. It's, it's a powerful relationship and journey that they have together. But the really important thing is that she discovers that wildness within herself. That's the thing that's animating all of it. That is anima. That is the thing, the archetype that, that travels so closely to life itself. So with that, I, I want to touch on five qualities that I've been sitting with this month and will continue to as the days grow darker and as the season grows more still. Five qualities that I'm associating with Persephone, and these are just ones that I've come up with, and they are really tied to my own experience right now. I didn't get these from any sort of reading or research I've been doing. I've done a little bit of reading around the edges, but I just decided to honor my own experience about what I'm discovering. And I will share some passages here at the end of today from Marion Woodman that I think beautifully reflect what I'm talking about in terms of these five qualities. But I came up with them from living them right now. And so in Persephone's underworld time, I think there's an incredible ability to know how important rest is. Rest slash beingness. So in other words, seeing the validity of that seeing the power that restoration and stillness afford our journey. A lot of us are really uncomfortable with being still because there's this old programming going off in the mind that says we have to prove our worth somehow. But the good stuff does not get heard in the cacophony of that raging mental space. I can attest to that time and time again. Only when we grow still do we encounter that underworld nature of ourselves. And there's such a blossoming and potential there. And potential meaning its ability to have fruit in the external world, it's already fully there in the underworld space. It's already fully arrived, but the potential meaning that it can flow up through us into the topside spring, summer, external space again. But we have to hold still sometimes and allow that deep rest, allow that even when we don't think anything is happening, that perhaps the most important things are happening. And I'll read a beautiful passage from Marion Woodman on that here at the end. So the second thing then I want to touch on about Persephone in the underworld is the emphasis is on embodiment and experience. And I know at first that might seem a contradiction because you're like, well, in the spring, summer, that's when she's out doing things in the external world. 
Yes, but those are just the forms. Those are not her reality. The center of gravity has shifted in the psyche when you truly go into the underworld. You know that now to be home. It is the creative matrix of life and death. This is who we are. This is where we arise from. And we never mistake that again, having lived there, having eaten the pomegranate seeds. We are tied to that and you don't go out that door again. You, you, you live there now. And that center of gravity shifts. You know who you really are. And so, yes, you enjoy forms and experiences in the external world, but your embodied sense of being, your experiential knowing of who you really are is now living within you. It's not something you're chasing through an external experience. It, you are the experience. You are the embodiment of that. And carrying that knowing into external experiences in the quote-unquote spring-summertime, that's a beautiful life. That is a full and vivacious and lovely life. That is an enchanted life, I would say. That's a, a life very well lived. But it's because you are an embodied divinity and you know that now. So this embodiment experiential quality to who you really are happens in the underworld, I would argue. Number three, boundaries. And we've talked about this before. Boundaries are important. We have to know where we want how we want to be treated how we will say yes and no to things in the external space that's important work that's good psychology those are good foundations to know but that is just knowledge in the underworld you live this it becomes part of you in boundaries as opposed to being things that you feel like you need to set and verbalize all the time in the external world, boundaries in the underworld naturally assert themselves. They just naturally appear. And often, I would say 99.9% of the time, without you having to say anything, because you are embodied. And so boundaries naturally assert themselves. And we don't have to go around talking about this all the time. Talk is cheap after a while. It's good to educate ourselves. It's good to know. It's good to grow. It's good to read and go to workshops and, and all the rest of it. But at some point, the rubber meets the road and you've got to live it. But when you do, then it's just part of you. And these boundaries that are important, boundaries for letting beautiful things into your life. I think that's one aspect of boundaries that I just recently allowed to dawn. Boundaries, naturally asserting themselves, also mean letting the good flood into your life because you know yourself as an abundant, dynamic being. You know yourself as wealth. 
You know yourself as power. You know yourself as love. These are the encounters of the underworld. These are the encounters of the sovereign. And you know yourself to be them. You experience them there. Stripped away of anything external, distracting you, you get to experience that. And so allowing the goodness to flow into your life as well. I think that's a really important aspect of boundaries that is not talked about when it's only knowledge. You know, usually it's people going around saying, okay, you can't treat me like this here, and here's my boundary there, and all the rest of it. It's important. Don't get stuck there. The boundaries naturally assert themselves, and that includes letting the goodness flood your life as well. Number four, hell, the hounds of winter, Hades, the god of the end world himself, ultimately serve Persephone. Why is that? Why is that? If you look at the myth of Persephone, Hades is absolutely devoted to her. And if you know anything about the Greek gods, they're not known for their fidelity. (laughs) And Hades is 100% faithful to Persephone. Something transforms in him as well. And he serves her. He serves life. Death serves life. The hounds of winter serve life. Hell and those experiences, the suffering, ultimately serve life in this realm, in this underworld. And why is that transformation possible? Because Persephone is able to look at those things and honor them unflinchingly. She develops in herself or more properly stated, accesses the part of her that knows judgment is not required, that all aspects are part of wholeness, and that by not having judgment, by holding to her stillness and her center and her authentic divinity, her authentic sovereignty, that she can gaze on anything and have it be transformed. That is true power. That's not just strength. In the top side world, we exercise strength. In the underworld, we come to know power. That is a very different thing. And so all of the tyranny, if you will, all of the hell's angels come to serve her. And that's quite a posse. You know, they respect her. She has earned their respect because she honored them. Now, they don't get to run the show. They must serve life. Life has no opposite. But she has given them their due. She has allowed them to be. And so they serve her. And for me, that is so much richer than the quote-unquote love and light approach to life, only wanting the love and the light, 
ultimately, the love and the light are precious. Absolutely. But the depth and the darkness, the mystery, are also, in my estimation, in my experience, essential for wholeness. And they add something more to to the times of light and fruition. Number five, desire. Persephone knows that it's okay to have desires that she would like to experience in the topside world. She's fine with that. And why is that? Because her ultimate desire that she experiences in the underworld is simply the experience of the miracle of herself, her own divinity. That's her deepest desire. So then having a desire to go to Italy or to have a beautiful partnership or to have a child or to, you know, have a thriving business or what have you, those are great. Those are fine. Those are the icing on the cake because this inner marriage, this richness, this integration psychologically with her own divinity and the experience of getting to know the miraculous just moving through her as a vehicle into the topside world is her deepest desire. So therefore, other desires are not her identity. This deeply held one of being the divine come alive through the form of her is her deepest desire. So therefore, the other ones will always hold their proper place and they won't usurp anything in terms of identity. So let me go through those again. Rest, stillness in being, you know, really knowing the value of them. Two, embodiment and experience. Three, boundaries naturally asserting themselves. Four, hell, hounds of winter, Hades, serving life, serving Persephone. And five, desire, her deepest desire being to experience the miracle of herself as the divine is a-okay. She is in sync with proper use of desire. So I continue to work with these ideas and embrace them and allow them to have their way with me as well. So with that... I'm going to end today, this last day of September, by reading some passages written by Marion Woodman, and it's from a book called Coming Home to Myself, Reflections for Nurturing a Woman's Body and Soul. She talks very archetypally about the feminine, and if you don't know who Marion Woodman is, she passed in 2018, and she was a Jungian analyst, so she was deeply involved in depth psychological work. She is very 
much a contributor to embodiment and femininity. And she was a dancer and a poet. And she has quite a canon of titles. And in fact, I need to add those to my bookshop. They're not on there yet, but I will add those in. And she is an inspiration in terms of so much depth psychological work in regards to the deep feminine. So I, she actually wrote this book with um, Jill Mellick. So this first part, I think, is written by Jill. And then the, the passages and poetry I'll share actually come from Marion Woodman. And she's been a huge influence in my life. So this section is called Trusting the Mystery. The mystery this section contemplates is not the kind found in a detective novel. Rather, it is the gatekeeper of the sacred. To dispel this kind of mystery with too harsh a light, to explain away everything about our dream, about love, about commitments, is to tear down the gate and allow sacred ground to be trampled. Mystery keeps us humble keeps our rationality aware of its ignorance. Sustaining awareness of the mystery, of what it is to be human, of what our dreams are, of what certain piercing moments mean, reminds us what a wonderfully small part of a larger life flow we are. As you reflect on these pages and passages, you might ask yourself where you experience a sense of mystery in your life. And so here's Marion Woodman. Why should we have more faith in an amaryllis bulb than in ourselves? We know, perhaps, that the amaryllis lives by an inner law with which we have lost touch in ourselves. The blossom dies. With rest and darkness, another bloom will come, we know, next year. In this place of the goddess, we accept birth and death. When we listen to the amaryllis, resonate with its silence, its eternal stillness, we find ourselves at the heart of the mystery. Here's another passage. Consciousness changes the perceived. Science knows this. Psychology is slower to believe. I trust there is a healing process going on in my unconscious. If I can keep in touch with it, my life flows forward. I constantly open to what I could never have imagined. I think that passage brings in a beautiful paradox about imagination, this incredible gift of the gods that we have, and yet... What we seek is seeking us. I've always loved that quote. What we seek is seeking us. There is something unfolding in us while we are learning to unfold. I don't know how to say that any better. It's just, again, part of that deep mystery. But we can use the imagination skillfully while also being absolutely delighted by what life wants to bless us with things beyond our wildest imaginations, the paradox of that. And here's the part that I, I mentioned earlier. 
If you watch a caterpillar, you might catch the moment when the crawling stops. Delicate membranes attached to a twig. Old skin is shed. Pupil skin hardens. The caterpillar chooses the food the butterfly will need. Chooses the exact space to later spread its wings. Without the space, the wings would never fly. The chrysalis is essential. It is the twilight zone, a precarious world between past and future. The grub will not emerge as a high-class caterpillar. Does it know what will go on inside? Does it prepare for the winged beauty that slowly and painfully emerges, that will live by a new set of laws? I love that passage. The caterpillar chooses the food the butterfly will need. Wow. That's, that's an incredibly alchemical statement. And we participate in this process until the rest is done by the mystery. She goes on in another passage, our still point at center. The psychic pendulum swings through to the left. We say, I despair, but I am not despair. This shall pass. It swings then through to the right. We say, I am in love, hopelessly in love, but this too shall pass. And finally, once we are in the flow of our life's river, we experience synchronicity, outer and inner, become much the same. That's the promise. Remember that the inner precedes the outer. Invoke Persephone. Spend time with her. Spend time with that part of your psyche that is deep in the mystery but has so much, so much to give. And until next time, take good care.
everyone. If you're enjoying this podcast, remember to hit subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. And if my work is nourishing your heart and imagination, consider supporting the Apothecary Podcast. Just follow the links to make a contribution. And for the full scope of my projects and offerings, including my weekly newsletter, visit LoriGreen.net.